Simon, it's a pleasure to host you on Network Capital. Thank you so much for your time. We've uh, we've gone deep into your work and that of the Hurti alumni and faculty at large, and we continue to be amazed by the diversity of intellectual potential and uh, the breadth and diversity of the students. So before we get started, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how did you get interested in uh, uh, policy and uh, data? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Utkarsh. Uh, nice to be here in the podcast. So uh, I'm a political scientist by training. I started uh, doing an undergrad in political science in one of the small German universities in the South, uh, very much uh, focused on classical political science questions. That is, why do people vote? Uh, why do they prefer certain parties uh, and the like? But uh, early on, I got interested in the more technical aspects of the discipline, in particular questions like how to measure people's preferences or how to, well, causally explain uh, human behavior. And that's how I got into some research projects. And then, uh, yeah, I really entered a rabbit hole. Uh, this was in the early days what, of what we would now call computational social science. So when... Uh, we discovered uh, tools and techniques to learn more about human behavior and political behavior and to, well, exploit the fact that we now have like uh, computational power at hand to uh, like work with big data, work with new forms of data uh, that we can gather online. And yeah, this has spurred uh, lots of research projects that make use of those new developments. Yeah. You know, the, over the past few years, many top universities have developed courses along these lines, Oxford, uh, Cambridge, uh, and a few others. And Hertie has been a leader in that space. We'll come to that in a moment. But do you want to tell our listeners a bit about your research interest uh, in particular? What kind of data do you analyze? What kind of um, research really piques your interest? Because you won a few awards and grants. We'd love to learn a bit more about that as well. Sure. So at, at Herdy, I hold a professorship at the intersection of data science and public policy. And I think that pretty much describes what I'm interested in. So I want to use uh, data science tools to inform uh, public policy and policy making, but also to learn about the actors in the field, that is the public, politicians, and the like. And in my work, uh, my focus is mostly on, um, well, causal um, evidence that is um, identify the effects of interventions that are policy relevant. So maybe I can give you uh, two examples. Um, hmm. One is from the work that I've done in the context of the COVID pandemic, right? So I'm like that pandemic, of course, um, um, like was a big boost for science for like multiple disciplines. Overall, science, not social science per se, but like, um, like played a big role in informing policies, like with evaluating containment measures, developing effective vaccines and the like. So me as a person with a social science background, I wondered what can I do, what can I contribute? And um, like what, what we identified as a group when we started working on a couple of projects was that the best measures don't work if the public doesn't accept them or if politicians are unwilling to follow scientific evidence. 
So in that context, one project that we started was an evaluation of um, a contact tracing app, a COVID contact tracing app. Uh, and like you've got many of those, or like many of those popped up in the early days of the pandemic with the idea of um, enhancing contact tracing with digital tools. So the Bluetooth tracking technology that everybody has in their pockets nowadays with their smartphones. And uh, so the promise of those tools was obviously to well make contact tracing more effective by passively tracking contacts with potentially infected people. Now, again, like if people don't use those apps, um, they're completely useless. And uh, when it was um, published that uh, like the German government was also planning such an app, we were uh, launching um, a data collection setup. We were launching a survey uh, coupled with an experiment. So first we wanted to learn who is using those apps, in particular, who are the early adopters? Because you can imagine that, um, well, behavior like that is not randomly scattered across the population, right? So you have some parts of the population who are like early adopters and others not, and like this can be detrimental to effective contact tracing. So in addition to measuring who uses the app, we also um, built in some experiments, some interventions where we wanted to motivate people to use the app. We tried mm. two things. One was an information treatment uh, that is like telling them about the app and how it works. That didn't work, unfortunately. So people at the end knew more about the app, but they were not more willing to take it up. And then we just paid them. This was the second inter intervention. And this was pretty effective actually. Unfortunately, this didn't lead to a policy change. So like the German government didn't decide to start paying people to use the app. Uh, this was, uh, well, one of my goals, it didn't work out. But mm. yeah, there's still room for science to further uh, inform policymaking. That's fantastic. It's, uh, it's an important insight that you shared where uh, sometimes unorthodox measures lead to great results. And uh, you can only know that if you start measuring stuff. Uh, you were giving us another example to illustrate it, uh, and perhaps uh, you could walk us through it. Maybe your walks were a wagon ground or something. Sure. So another project that I'm currently pretty excited about, also because like we're literally in the field right now with that project, is on measuring public preferences for hate speech regulation. So I think I don't have to motivate that topic. Everybody knows that um, like hate speech online is a big thing, and the debate of like how to tackle it from a policy perspective is a big one because um, there is no easy solution. There is no easy fix. Although some people uh, and some like powerful people claim <laughs> that there are easy fixes. The problem of course, is that uh, people have fundamentally different opinions about the core question that is what should and should not be allowed to say. And um, we believe that what the debate needs is some evidence that is also informed by public preferences, how people like you and me think about it. Why is that important? Because like everybody um, can participate in online interactions. And if there is a mismatch between how people perceive the le legitimacy of speech on the one hand and how it's regulated, yeah, this might spur discontent or yeah, just mm. uh, like not help the debate. So what we've been doing is to field a survey in multiple countries. So this includes countries in Europe, Germany, UK, Poland, 
uh, but also countries in like other areas of the world. So we have India, Indonesia, Nigeria, Philippines, um, United States, Turkey, Brazil, Colombia, like lots of lots of different countries with lots of different mm -hmm. contexts, right? Also policy wise. Political systems, yeah. Political systems, right, that play a role. Um, so you have different traditions of uh, how, how speech is valued, for instance. And then um, on, on top of that, our logic is that when you want to know how people think about hate speech online and moderation practices, you should not ask abstract questions, right? So we want to know how people would actually tackle hate speech. So what we created was, uh, and this is again like why multiple like, like computational methods uh, effectively, mm. we, created, uh, we created lots of synthetic social media vignettes, that is little messages, little conversations that contain controversial speech and elements of that. Because we wanted to find out like what elements uh, of speech make people um, consider their opinions, right? So like, is it who attacks who? That is sender characteristics, targets character characteristics. Is it the message, right? So is it like opinion versus uh, like a threat or an insult or other forms of incivility? Is it speech form? So we have like verbal statements, but we also have memes, right? Because like memes are a big thing, obviously, <laughs> in social media. Yeah. And uh, then we want to know what respondents th think should be done with that, right? So should the post stay online? Should it be taken off? Should the uh, sender be penalized? And by whom? By the platform or by like law enforcement, for instance? Right. Unfortunately, I cannot share results yet. We're literally in the middle uh, of, of the field period right now, but that's something I'm looking forward to, to look into those data and, and learn how people think about that. With what's going on in social media platforms, change in leadership, um, your work becomes even more important. Um, I want to just remark on the importance of meme. I learned that meme comes from Richard Dawkins, who you know morphed it from Gene, and the way Gene spread and the way memes spread are important. And anyone you know studying policy and data must uh, pay close attention to to memes because they you know they uncover much more than one would have thought. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, this dates back to the, if I remember correctly, the 1970s, like when he introduced yeah. the, the concept. So that's quite an impact as a scientist, I would say. <laughs> yes, I know. Literally becoming a cultural icon. Uh, Simon, I was uh, very intrigued in noticing the shift in public policy professionals. Um, you know, say just even a few years back, uh, a lot of policy degrees would be uh, theoretical, or at least some of them would be theoretical, not super related to what's going on in the world right now, not super data oriented. But it seems like uh, you and the Hurti um, school at large has taken a different perspective. Do you want to tell us about how data science has emerged as an important policy tool and how students are reacting to it? Sure. Um, so that's a development that we've noticed uh, over the past couple of years, I would say. And like, obviously, uh, like even my career and like what I've been interested in, I always was a proponent of like using more quantitative evidence also in policy making. But like what we have had at the Hurdy score for quite a while is a sequence in the classical program. So we have the, the Master of Public Policy on the one hand and the Master of International Affairs. And more recently, um, the Master of uh, Data Science for Public Policy. But in our original programs, the, the public policy programs, 
we uh, had a sequence that is built on like classical statistics and then more advanced statistics that is uh, causal inference, impact evaluation of policies. And people got more and more attracted to those courses because they, uh, I think, like realized that these are hard skills that are very valuable if they want to make statements about, for instance, what policies work and what don't, right? So you can evaluate the context uh, you can evaluate individual individual decision making, but uh, there is also value in well pinning down causal effects of a policy and then put them into perspective. In addition to that, uh, we also put an emphasis um, on the technical and practical aspects. That is how to run your own models, how to collect your own data, and more and more. People got attracted by that. Uh, they also noticed in their professional years, for instance, that this is very valuable knowledge. So a few years ago, we decided to, uh, well, put even more emphasis in that and create a new program with the Master of Data Science for Public Policy that is um, particularly focused on the technical, on the data science aspects of that. It is still a program um, that is at the intersection of pure data science and public hmm. policy, because I think, and that's also the, I would say like the core spirit of the school that we need diversity and we need interdisciplinarity. You need knowledge from both sides to be able to communicate and also understand uh, the, the topics and challenges that are relevant right now. So my hope is that with uh, our training, students will well, both be able to um, well, conduct their own analyses from whatever sector and field they're working in, but also able to moderate discussions between, for instance, policymakers and those uh, implementing, uh, those are, that are on the implementing side, and those that um, are like more in the engine room and um, well, create evidence that is then used to inform, um, well, uh, effective decision-making. Yeah. Expand on the interdisciplinary aspect of it. I was wondering if mostly statistically inclined people or quants take up this uh, master's in data science and policy course, or are you seeing um, people from all sorts of backgrounds coming and learning data science on the go while they study policy? We see all sorts of background, really. And I think that's also like one feature of a policy school. So we're not a computer science department uh, that we're probably more focused on one particular discipline or field. Uh, like just in terms of numbers across all uh, programs, we have roughly 60%, uh, like speaking of students, I'll, I can also say a little bit about faculty, but speaking of students, we have roughly 60% with a social science background roughly 20 with a business and economics background, but also then people from the humanities, law, science, and engineering. Mm -hmm. So everything is represented. And this makes teaching somewhat challenging, of course, right? Because people mm -hmm. don't only have different backgrounds, but also skills. At the same time, uh, in some of the courses, pretty much everybody has to start from scratch. And then I think this uh, diversity in backgrounds is particularly useful because like people bring different skills and knowledge to the table. And um, like one advantage in, at Herdy, I would say is that like we can work in comparatively small group sizes and can use assignments where people can really interact with each, with each other and then benefit from, from their knowledge. 
are you seeing uh, students and alumni and faculty across these three programs collaborate with each other on projects or um, take up internships or you know create new projects together? Yes, I can uh, give a concrete example for that. So uh, I'm teaching uh, one of the introductory courses in the data science program um, that is introduction to data science, which is like which gives students a panoramic view of the key data science tools from a very hands-on perspective, right? So like coding aspects and topics like databases, visualization, modeling, um, communication, data ethics, those topics. And that course is open to both um, data science students and students of public policy. And um, yeah, those students are, are working together. Uh, we've been having workshops where they've been teaching each other additional skills and, and techniques, uh, material that we've also put online. And yeah, they're mm. students from different disciplines or like programs, but also backgrounds collaborate. Uh, they also have a final project where they uh, work together and learn from each other. So I'm like, Hurdy is still a fairly small place. So there's really opportunity mm -hmm. to also um, learn across disciplines and programs. Yeah, that's, that's an exciting part. Plus, uh, a lot of the network capital Hurdy alumni tell me that the internship, the longer version and the shorter version, plus the work authorization really makes it easy for people to look at these jobs. And you know, a good thing about programs such as these is you can work at a large tech company, a small tech company, start your own, work at a think tank. So it gives you an international organization, gives you a wide range of options. Uh, you touched upon big data you know, analyses of, uh, of various kinds. I was wondering if small data means anything to a policy or a data science person. When you look at like just like limited data that's available or certain cases that not too much information is available, um, how do you teach your students to process something like that, both as an academic and a practitioner? That's a good and tricky question because, yeah, sometimes like the textbook methods just don't work in small data settings. I guess my perspective on that is it depends on what you consider small data. So um, I usually work with micro level data. That's also like uh, what I often use as teaching material that is surveys, that is, for instance, tracking data. Here we're talking about millions of observations. On the other hand, um, when uh, you talk to policymakers and ask them what they believe, which policies work, then studies sing, uh, quickly become a single case, right? So if I approach a policymaker and I tell them, okay, like I learned about your policy, here's some evidence on, on its effectiveness, uh, the person might answer yes, but like this is really only one case. Can you give me more? And I think that's a valid concern, right? So we're um, often in the situation where we can say a lot about individual cases, and there I'm all in for like, um, yeah, considering like context uh, conditions and something that, that is highly, highly specific. That's also an aspect where I learn a lot from students bringing all different backgrounds and, and context that I have little knowledge about uh, because obviously findings from one setting don't translate into the other. So in that sense, I would say, even when you work with large amounts of data, you're facing lots of small data issues and they're not necessarily um, solvable quantitatively. Uh, that is, you cannot like just um, like pipe them into a model and then say, okay, that's, that's a result. 
you always have to contextualize. And in the context of quantitative analyses, um, contextualization means adding additional verbal content and context in your uh, results or like how you, how you um, make your case. You teach students who come from very different cultural backgrounds, economic backgrounds, international backgrounds, but you're teaching them data science and uh, policy or at the intersection of that. How difficult or easy it is? Because one way to look at it is that data doesn't have, a, data is very objective. It points you in a certain direction, but there is of course context and where people come from. What are the attitudes about, uh, uh, about data? Do you have any thoughts on that? Maybe you can share some reflection from your students or your teaching experience. I think that's a very important point, and that speaks to the issue that I mentioned before that um, like diversity in backgrounds is an absolute opportunity. Uh, and that being said, it can make teaching more challenging because uh, it's not necessarily that we uh, talk about different things, but different disciplines tend to label the same things differently. So it's often also about like finding a common language, finding a common terminology. So for instance, when I uh, talk um, maybe like with a computer scientist about like how to set up a model and how to select variables that should go in to predict, for instance, behavior in a pandemic, I would call that variable selection or covariate hmm. selection. And the computer scientist would speak about like feature engineering. Uh, hmm. That's just one, one example. And there are multiple of those. Um, so I think it's important in the context of our teaching that we agree on a terminology that works for everyone and we don't um, require too much like prerequisites, right? So like right. we start from scratch um, in the more technical programs, like uh, in, the, in the data science for public policy program, we do expect people to have fundamental knowledge on, on, on math and on, on, on stats and on, on coding ideally. Mm -hmm. But uh, then at the same time, like those are uh, the skills where like terminology is uh, also more, more consistent across disciplines, right? Algebra yeah. is algebra. A hundred percent. On Network Capital, we're a mentorship and career advancement platform. I noticed that people are really interested around the world in careers in public policy. But as you know, public policy is such a broad space. Like it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. What's your advice to a young professional, a young student interested in public policy to figure out his or her area of interest to, if they're interested in a particular thing, how should they go deep? Should they follow a particular question? And uh, we'll all be very interested in how you found your niche within the policy space. That's a very important and like for me, particularly tricky question because like I'm, you could say like one of the leftovers in academia, right? So like I never, left academia so all that i know of the non-academic um uh, sector say or sectors comes from talking to people like you talking to alumni um so uh, and, and learning more about the space there that being said i think what um is probably like a, a generalizable lesson is follow your interests mm. uh, regardless of whether you stay in academia or non-academia so yes observing trends is um is important like this opens up opportunities but at the same time um future developments are like always difficult to predict like who knows whether your particular interest in for instance um like the effectiveness of like certain 
educational programs and initiatives, whether that will not become one of the big topics soon. We we don't know. Like epidemiologists probably didn't have on their agenda that they would be pretty popular uh, from 2020 on. Yeah. So um, I guess that is um, that is one thing. On the other hand, in university environments, but also in environments like, like big cities where you can't get exposed to different topics, my recommendation is always to to be open-minded, right? So mm -hmm. it's um, it's good when you have focus and when you have interests, but um, also there is more. There is more out there. And uh, talking to others and learning about opportunities is, uh, um, is, I think, like always worth it. That's why we offer events where people um, can get exposed to other ideas, but um, also, yeah, allow people uh, to, to test out different things, be it in their internship right. or professional year. Understood. Um, when you look back uh, at your own career and the way you've shaped your interest, the way you've built it and now built quite a name for yourself, what have been some very helpful skills and some very helpful attitudes that have shaped your path? That's another very good question. Um, so in terms of skills, I do think that there is value in a set of what I would call hard skills, although that's a somewhat fuzzy term, but um, it matters uh, when, also like when you don't intend, for instance, to, to become a data scientist, I think it pays off to uh, be able to do some coding. It's not that difficult. Um, that might not be your primary interest, but um, coding is relevant, coding is interesting. Also to understand what other people talk about when they talk about certain say coding problems or like challenges for, for data science programs. So um, that is something that definitely paid off for me that I started fairly early on during my undergrads to um, do some self learning. Uh, back in the days, this was R when in my discipline, R was not that big of a thing. So to be a little bit ahead of the curve uh, in terms of those skills would, would certainly pay off. Then uh, in terms of knowledge, again, uh, I would say like follow, uh, follow your interest. Uh, you cannot predict mm. what uh, other people will uh, find interesting. That's an advice that I also got yeah. early on and I think it paid off. Follow your interest, follow your curiosity. I think it's much more tangible than follow your passion because sometimes it's hard to figure out what your passion is, right? That's true. <laughs> uh, Simon, tell me uh, before I let you go, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't or any parting message that you have for you know people tuning in? Because we have students and uh, professionals from all around the world, all walks of life, very interested in you know the, your kind of work. Good question. So I think uh, like, like I think I, I had the opportunity to talk about and touch on, on different issues. Maybe one thing, and that is um, uh, like we as institution, like we try to um, like uh, be as transparent as possible about who we are. We have a web presence for all our programs and um, sometimes or maybe uh, often even uh, some questions remain. And maybe those are the questions that are much more important to say like potential future students than we would perceive them, such as like, how would you uh, deal with a person from my background? Like, are there, can I expect peers that share a similar background uh, like me. 
or um, what are additional opportunities in Berlin or in, in Germany or in Europe more generally that I don't see uh, in, in your programs. And I guess like what I can definitely invite everybody uh, to do is to reach out to us. We're always happy to talk and yeah, to provide an honest perspective about like who we are and what we're doing. So we're definitely open to that. I'll follow Simon on Twitter, find his uh, classes on the Hertie School's website. And I definitely look forward to meeting you when I'm in Germany next. Um, Simon, it was a real pleasure having this chat with you. And I know we'll be collaborating on a wide range of things. Thanks again for having me. And I enjoyed the discussion very much. Thanks.